Well, good morning, Oceanside Sanctuary. It's good to be back with you again on this Sunday morning here on YouTube and Facebook. We have been going through a new teaching series that we're calling Planting, Growing, and Nurturing. We're taking a look at the parables of Jesus that have to do with these metaphors, these images of agriculture, planting seeds, growing trees, uh, all of those kinds of really rich images that teach us what it means to live a life of spirituality in the way of Jesus. Today, we're going to continue with that series. We're going to take a look at a parable called the parable of the tares. This is one of those wild parables. What's really interesting about it is what we often do with it is ironically exactly what Jesus is trying to tell us not to do. So we're going to jump into that in just a moment. But before we do, I want to invite you as always to just join with me in a moment of prayer. Let's center our hearts center our minds as we come before this text today. Would you join with me? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to come together today to gather around this text, to read these parables, to learn from you, to grow in our faith. Wherever we might be, wherever we're worshiping today, we ask that you would bless us, that you would sharpen our minds and open our hearts to receive what you have to give to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, today we're going to take a look at the parable of the weeds among the wheat or the parable of the wheat and the tares. Your Bible might have a little bit of a different subtitle there, but whatever your Bible calls it, it's Matthew chapter 24, or excuse me, Matthew, cha Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. If you have your Bible, turn there now. If you don't, as always, we're going to put the words up on the screen there. And let's go ahead and just jump into this text and read through this parable together, starting in verse 24. It says this. Now he, of course, he being Jesus, he put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, this is a much longer parable than those that we have been reading lately. It gets into a little bit more of a complicated story. But the first thing that you might notice about this, because we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, is that this parable, again, like last week's parable, this parable shifts powerfully towards action that needs to be done in some way, shape, or form. Remember the first two weeks, we talked about how those parables really highlighted that we weren't supposed to take action or that whatever action we took didn't necessarily matter because those parables were highlighting how the power of God was different. The kingdom of God, the rule or the reign of God was different than we expect 
from earthly kingdoms. And so the essential teaching those first two weeks, those first two parables, was that we had to learn to let go of control. And then last week, when we took a look at our third parable, we noticed that in that parable, the scene had really shifted away from the mysterious work of God towards the work that we must do. And at first glance, it looks like this parable is similar to that. It seems like it has shifted away from the mystery of God or the work that God is doing outside of our control. And it seems to focus on this dilemma, this problem. What do we do when there's something in our life that's been planted that's good and then something else has been mixed in with it that is bad? And so one of the complications of this particular parable is that it adds that extra dimension. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples something very specific about the kingdom of God. And it has to do with how they deal with their judgment of the weeds and the wheat. In other words, which is good and which is bad and what do they do about it? The second thing that you might notice about this parable is that it seems at first glance like it's really bad advice. If you're a gardener, like I have been sometimes in my backyard growing tomatoes or cucumbers or green beans or whatever it might be, that if you have a backyard garden, chances are you're out there weeding it all the time. The last thing that you want is weeds growing up and you know choking out your garden so that you know you can't enjoy those amazing vegetables when you get to pull those tomatoes off the vine and cut them up and taste them. And so this seems like maybe it wouldn't be very good advice at all. Jesus seems to be saying that, you know, pulling weeds is a bad idea. And chances are, if you're anything like me, that that seems like it's a little bit counterintuitive advice. Well, we're not the only ones who might read this parable and be confused. It turns out that Jesus's disciples, Jesus's followers were confused too. So Jesus, later in this chapter, starting in verse 36, Jesus actually gives the explanation for this parable. His disciples come to him and they say, Hey, Jesus, what what are you talking about? Please explain this parable of the weeds and the wheat. And Jesus does. He, He doesn't always do this, but a few times in the Gospels, Jesus gets frustrated with his disciples and he explains to them what he means. So he goes ahead and tells them, Well, here's what this parable means. And we pick that up here in verse 37. It says this, He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So he seems to be referring to himself or to this idea of the Christ, the person who comes to bring the good news of God. Verse 37. Verse 38, The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Now, I want to stop there because Jesus gives them this interpretation of his parable using these really rich symbolic images of Uh, angels and the devil and the children of God and the children of the evil one, the son of man and the end of the age. Jesus is using 
apocalyptic imagery to explain to them a very earthly, very tangible spiritual message. And I, I want to say to you, and I've said this before, don't get tripped up by this language about burning up at the end of the age. Don't get tripped up about this idea of hell. Because it can be often be the case that when we read a parable like this and fire is mentioned or there's weeping and gnashing of teeth mentioned, anytime Jesus refers to this ancient Jewish idea of judgment at the end of the age, we tend as Christians to conjure up images of hell. And then we, I think, are very susceptible to thinking that this parable is about hell, that Jesus is teaching essentially that there is a place called hell where bad people will go and God will judge them and throw them into that place. And therefore we have to be really good people. But that's ironic because that's actually the opposite of the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach here. Far too often as Christians throughout the history of the church, we've latched onto these images of judgment and condemnation and we've used those images of eternal torment and these images of hell to judge and condemn people so that we can control them and get them to behave and act and speak and think the way that we want them to. But that is not what Jesus is doing with this parable. This parable is not about hell. Rather, Jesus is explaining to them that there is a time coming in the future when God will do the work that they too often are trying to do themselves. In other words, Jesus is saying to them when he conjures up this image of judgment at the end of the age, very quickly, Jesus is saying, God will sort out the good from the bad at the end of the age. You don't have to worry about it. And that is, of course, exactly what we do. We worry about it. We worry about who is good and we worry about who is bad. We take it upon ourselves to judge who might be people of God and who might be people who are evil. We walk around in this world relating to each other almost first and foremost through the lens of judgment. And that is all too often true of people who are Christians. We think somehow that it's our job to do God's judging. But instead, Jesus is appealing to this old Jewish idea of a judgment that will come at the end of the age. And he's saying, you don't have to worry about who is good and who is bad. God will sort that out in the end. This is, of course, exactly where ideas about a final judgment come from. In the ancient Jewish tradition, there was this constant argument, this debate, this wrestling with how it is that God is going to make things right when so often in this world it seems like things are not right. We see the prophets throughout the Hebrew Bible wrestling with God, asking God, why is it that you don't judge these people who seem so obviously wicked? We find in the writings of books like Ecclesiastes, the preacher in Ecclesiastes wrestling with this same question when he says, God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. This is an eternal question that we all struggle with. 
Why is it that bad things happen to good people? And why is it that good things so often seem to happen to bad people? And when we're faced with those dilemmas, that messiness of life, we tend to fall into judgment. In other words, life is a world that is full of wheat and tares. Life is full of a world that is full of of good fruit and bad fruit that grow up right alongside each other. And it's our impulse, it's our desire to pull those weeds. But Jesus, with this parable, tells us that the kingdom of God is not like that, that those who follow God do not prematurely judge. It would be really difficult to overstate just how important this is because uh, it turns out that human beings are profoundly bad at judging other human beings. Oftentimes we think that you know, if we're the kind of people who uh, work in professions where we interview people for jobs all the time, or, or maybe we work in an educational setting and we work with people who might be sometimes trying to deceive us about turning in their homework on time or not turning in their homework on time, or, or maybe you or somebody you know works in law enforcement and you investigate crimes and you have come to believe that you can tell when a suspect is lying to you and you can tell when they're telling you the truth. But we know now from psychological studies that all of us, every single one of us, are profoundly bad at telling when somebody is being deceptive. We know that even people who are professionals at this are no better at recognizing deception than simple chance. What that means is, is that if you think somebody is lying to you, it doesn't matter what you do for a living, it doesn't matter how much training you've had, you can do just as well flipping a coin as you can by trying to decide if somebody is actually telling you the truth or not. We're just not good at this at all. And the main reason that we're not good at, at recognizing deception, the, the main reason that we're not good at recognizing when somebody is a person of good character or bad character is because each and every one of us comes with profound unconscious biases. One of the really interesting things that's happening these days is uh, there is an awakening in the United States and around the world to this idea that we all have in us by virtue of our socialization unconscious biases that affect the way that we see other human beings. Some of the most interesting work on this is being done at Stanford University right here in California, where a psychologist named Jennifer Eberhardt is doing studies around unconscious bias. And in one experiment, Jennifer Eberhardt took a group of students, a group of volunteers who are participating in a study, and she hooked them up to MRI machines so that they could see what was happening with their brains. And then they began to show them pictures and began to just see how different parts of their brains were lighting up when they saw the faces of other human beings. And one thing that they discovered is that the areas of the brain that register recognition were lighting up when people were seeing faces of human beings who shared their ethnicity. And when they saw the faces of human beings who were different than them, a different race or ethnicity, that, that their brain struggled to recognize the finer differences and features of their faces. In other words, we all tend to be socialized 
to be a better judge of people who are our own race, our own color. And we struggle to accurately recognize and judge the faces of people who look differently than we do. And this, of course, contributes to this problem of unconscious bias. One of the things that we know from unconscious bias studies is that people are constantly making poor and sometimes disastrous judgments about other people based on their unconscious racial biases. Studies have shown again and again that if you take a candidate for a job position and you take that candidate, a person of color, and you give them a name that sounds like a typical Anglo person's name, like a John Smith or a Jennifer Smith, then that person is far more likely to get the job than if you take the same resume, the same application, you simply change it out for a name that sounds more ethnic or more foreign. We have biases that constantly tell us that we can trust people who look and sound and act just like us, and we must fear people who don't. I'm really convinced that Jesus understood this. I think this parable really teaches us this profound lesson that we ought not to prejudge, that we ought to be so conscious of how incredibly bad we are at judging the wheat from the tares that we would deliberately and intentionally stop prejudging other people, that we would learn to turn that part of our brains off, that we would interrogate our own biases to the point where we are able then to grow into people who don't judge that way anymore. Jesus does this by pointing out that the weeds and the wheat are growing up right alongside each other. And one of the things that's been pointed out by biblical scholars over the years is that it's very likely that the weeds that Jesus is referring to in this parable were a kind of ryegrass that's common in that part of the world called darnel. And one of the interesting things about darnel is that when it is young, when it's just beginning to sprout and grow, it looks so much like wheat that it's almost indiscernible. It's not until later when it's ready to be harvested, it's not until that time when the fruit is evident that it becomes obvious that one is the wheat and the other is the weed. Jesus is teaching that very same idea to us as followers of Christ. He's teaching us that we cannot trust our prejudgments. We're not good enough at judging other human beings. We're not competent to do that work. Instead, we ought to grow and nurture and raise up others around us regardless of what our unconscious biases tell us. And we allow God to sort out who is good and who is bad in the end. Now, this parable, of course, I think has profound implications for our relationships. It's not just unconscious bias around race or ethnicity. It's also the way that we judge each other in our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, in uh, the work that we do in our workplaces or in our schools. We have a tendency to bring those prejudicial thoughts and ideas to all the relationships we have. 
and it tends to infect those relationships to the point where we're not able to have good relationships anymore. Jesus here is teaching us to free ourselves from that judgment. He's teaching us to trust God to make those judgments instead. That is my prayer for us today as a church, that we would learn to trust that God knows what God is doing, that God is competent to judge, and that it's our job simply to spread love and goodness to all those who are around us and to ignore those prejudicial biases that each of us has inside of us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today and for the way that your teaching challenges and stretches us. We pray that you would open our hearts, that we would become people who are able to see others and see the world the way that you do. That we would learn to be cautious and suspicious of our own prejudices and biases. And that you would teach us to trust that you are able to sort it out in the end. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey everyone, we have a few couple quick announcements before you head off today. You're going to see a little QR code in the bottom right hand corner. You can open up your phone, point your camera at that QR code, and you can follow along with me as we do some announcements. The first is, is if you're new, we would love to connect as always. We're always excited to get to know new people who are here with us online. So you can fill out a connection card on our website or via the QR code. Next up, our next book club is happening on August 5th, Thursday, August 5th at 6.30 p.m. And this time we are looking at the book Healing Collective Trauma by Thomas Hubble. So this book is all about collective trauma, how that manifests in the world, how to deal with it. Um, he offers very practical group modalities to deal with collective trauma. And it's going to be a really just exciting book club. So we hope you can make it there August 5th, 6.30 p.m. That is on Zoom as well. So scan the QR code or go to our calendar section on the website to RSVP for that. All right, everyone, that's it for today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. Um, continue doing what you're doing. Continue living this beautiful life that we've all been given by God. So we'll see you soon. Peace and blessings.